0: You're listening to a special episode of Policy, Guns & Money. Hi there, I'm Renee Jones and joining me now is Dr Isaac Kafir, Director of National Security Programs at ASPE. Now Isaac, it's been a huge week in Brexit news. It has been. And you recently spoke with a few Brexit experts and I think we'll start with your interview with Philomena Murray, who among many other things is a professor in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Now Isaac, it sounds like Philomena is a great person to talk to regarding all things Brexit.
1: It was tremendous fun to chat with her because she is a fountain of knowledge when it comes to the European Union.
0: She certainly is, and we'll hear from her now.
1: Good morning, I am here with Professor Murray uh, from the uh, School of Social and Political Science at the University of Melbourne, and we're going to be trying to untangle the uh, Brexit situation. The first question I would like to ask you, Professor Murray, is uh, what's the best and the worst case scenario for Australia in relation to uh, Brexit?
2: Look, I think that uh, Australia actually has got many advantages in uh, uh, its relationship with uh, both the European Union and with the UK. It already has established partnerships and many trade relations with um, the UK as part of the European Union. the The best case scenario would for Australia would actually be if the uh, UK were to decide to remain in the European Union, because Australia wouldn't have to negotiate a rather large number of n- new. Um, agreements with the UK. However, even with the worst case scenario, where, f- for instance, there is a, either a hard or a relatively soft Brexit, that is, where the UK would remain, for instance, in form of customs union in um, the short term with the European Union, I really think that Australia is in a good position because it already has fantastic negotiators in trade in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT. So it really knows how to negotiate um, free trade agreements, FTAs. So when it comes to negotiating with the UK, it's really likely that the UK will want to engage with Australia as one of the first trading partners because of many commonalities. So the worst case is that Australian business will suffer, but I think that Australia, the Australian government is already working quite a lot through its working group with the UK on attempting to shore up um, advantages for um, Australian business in the
1: UK. Uh, that was uh, certainly very helpful. I, I think it also might be useful maybe for our listeners to know that, you know, come March 29th when Brexit happens, on March 30th, nothing effectively changes beside the fact that the UK... UK is no longer a member of the European Union because then there will be a two-year transition period yes, that would allow yes. for, for, this, for this negotiation. So um, kind of thinking about the, the, the challenges of negotiation, should there not be, let's say, a, a Brexit deal, what are some of the key issues that Australian policymakers uh, should focus on as they are in participating in their negotiation?
2: Look, I think that Australian negotiators have already been thinking about this, which is fantastic. Um, Look, I think they're going to have to think about what's going to happen for a number of issues, because the European Union is a single market of freedom of movement of goods. Mm -hmm. So that means they need to look at how Australian goods are going to get into the UK when the UK is actually transitioning out, as you pointed out, in this two-year period post the withdrawal agreement once it gets through the um, British Parliament. So really, they're going to have to look at what's going to happen to goods access in the UK, because many Australian goods, as we know, do go about 38 percent of Australian exports to the European Union actually in goods go to the UK. So they'll need to look at that at that perspective. The second is the right of establishment of um, companies. Because of the familiarity with the UK system, because of the long tradition of working together, we have a large number of Australian companies based in the UK. And now they are going to be at a distinct disadvantage if they wish to keep the UK as their European headquarters because it simply won't be possible. They will be able to keep companies yes. there but they can't be the headquarters for um, Europe. Um, So that's going to be a challenge. And a third one is a more human one. And that is the free movement, not just or or at least some access for Australian uh, workers to get into the UK, but it's also the access to certain types of visas, um, which the UK has been able to offer to young people, for instance, Mm -hmm. who want to go to the UK um, for maybe a year, maybe two years. So there is that human element too. And I suppose finally, still on the human element, Many people in Australia do consider themselves to have a great affinity with the UK, a commonality in many of the institutions um, of parliament, for instance. And so there is that affinity based partly on language, influence of media, etc. So there is going to be this sense of being a little bit unstuck or becoming a concern about maybe a sense of being distant, um, which I think will be a concern for, um, for Australia.
1: So, so, so building on that, and again, because I'm, I'm aware that you've done a lot of work on sort of, you know, training manuals and, you know, promoting a, a better understanding of the European Union here in Australia, what do you think Australian policymakers and Australian institutions can do to increase interest in the European Union? Uh, because one gets the sense that it's a very select group of individuals who really take an interest in what we would call European studies.
2: Yes, look, I think there is probably a difference between interest in and knowledge of. Yes. I think that the knowledge of the European Union is not widespread across um, equ- across Australian society. But then the argument could probably be made that about many European countries as well, that they don't probably understand mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. European Union terribly well. But they probably don't need to because they know that they have the European passport. They basically know that there are certain rights, for instance, no extra charges on mobile mm-hmm. phones, and they move from one EU country to another. So their knowledge tends to be almost on a need-to-know basis, a more societal knowledge. Here in Australia, um, we really would need to continue to study and to monitor what's happening in the European Union. Um, We certainly have fantastic university courses, Mm -hmm. um, centres of study, many schools of political science, of economics and others, uh, of law, all work now um, on European Union studies. So in a sense, I don't think every Australian needs to be an expert on the European Union, Mm -hmm. but I do think that um, it would be useful to maybe provide um, more briefings from the Australian government on the impact of, for instance, the free trade agreement that Australia is negotiating currently with the European Union and indeed about other advantages um, with the European Union in our relationship here in Australia um, with the institutions
1: so uh, if you like my my final questions because uh, again we are we are limited in time but uh, I'm gonna put you a little bit on the spot if that's okay mm-hmm. um so the brexit deal did not go through uh, in the British Parliament and yet Theresa may has survived a no-confidence motion that's
2: right yeah. so
1: where do you see the situation in the UK developing because clearly the Europeans at the moment are stepping back trying to basically saying well until you figure out what you want we can't negotiate so,
2: yes, yes, yes. So I think basically we're looking at the crystal ball here and mm-hmm. looking at what the options are and the scenarios are. Right. One scenario is that Theresa May comes back with a plan B, which she had promised to do within a few days of of presenting the withdrawal agreement to the British Parliament should it be voted down. So really she has attempted in a way to do this already by writing to the um, leaders of two of the um, institutions, the Commission and the European Council, in the hope that they could provide clarification. They did, but really now they're awaiting some form of indication of what's going to happen. So the possibility... Possibilities are that there is possibly another vote of no confidence. Another is that the government call a general election. Another is that the uh, UK crashes out, as they're calling it, Mm -hmm. without a a deal, which would be disastrous uh, for the UK and also for um, Europe, but also for Australia. And another possibility is a renegotiation of the deal where the uh, UK pulls back on some of its um, red lines and says, look, we actually will accept, for instance, some some form of immigration um, rather than saying we want no freedom of movement for European Union citizens to come into the UK or some other aspect. So really it's a question of whether the UK can move um, the positions in which it said it wasn't able to move or didn't want to. And I think that there would be some willingness in brussels and among the other 27 countries to really try and support the uk government as it comes out despite some misunderstanding in some parts of the british press and the british political class i think there is you know there is really an enthusiasm from some in the british political class but also in brussels And among those 27 countries to really make sure this is as advantageous for everyone and that there are no hard feelings with this former partner, uh, which has been in the European Union since 1973.
1: Well, um, thank you very, very much, Professor Murray, for a scintillating uh, scintillating overview of some of the challenges that uh, uh, Britain, Europe and Australia face uh, as we uh, continue on the road of Brexit. Thanks ever so much. A great pleasure. Thank you, Isaac.
0: Now it was a interesting conversation between Isaac Kafir and Philomena Murray there. And Isaac, there are obviously quite a few security implications stemming from Brexit. I I remember just a few days ago that you mentioned it could affect freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea.
1: Uh, Yes. So, for example, we we know that the European Union and European member states are a little bit more concerned about some of the Chinese activities in the uh, South China Sea. Uh, We are uh, seeing a few more uh, French uh, frigates uh, in the area, uh, and there is the possibility of the Brits uh, sending a few more uh, ships our way as well. Again, just to emphasize to the Chinese that um, they do not control the South China Sea.
0: Mm. So you also spoke with Dr. Margarita Matera from the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Melbourne on the broader security issues of Brexit. So we'll hear that interview now.
1: Hello, Um, I am here with uh, Dr. Uh, Margarita Matera from the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Dr. Matera is uh, a leading expert on the European Union and European security issues, and we're going to be discussing with her some of the issues relating to Brexit and where EU-Australian Defence and Security Cooperation can go uh, into the future. So um, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, So I thought maybe we could start with uh, your views or assessment, first of all, about how Australians should really look at the EU, because there is a tendency to see the EU as primarily a trade and economic entity. But uh, clearly, over the last 15 uh, uh, 15 years, the EU has developed more of a security identity. So if you could maybe just give us a little bit of an understanding uh, where exactly the EU stands on security and defence issues.
0: So the
3: EU is very much a security actor but in more of a non-traditional sense. Um, The EU does not have its own standing army, so it is not seen as a security actor in what we sort of refer to as hard security, but it has become more and more of a security actor in areas such as dealing with um, non-traditional security threats and dealing with crisis management, so um, responding to emergencies, dealing with uh, international crises and trying to help resolve of conflicts through um, crisis management operations, whether they be military or civilian, through um, areas of greater engagement and cooperation with states to try and deal with counter-terrorism activities and to counter weapons of mass destruction, etc. So when we understand the EU, I think we need to sort of look at it in terms of very, a very different security act to, say, a state. And so Australia needs to look at it in terms of how it can engage with the EU in, in these areas. And over the last um, number of years, Australia has seen um, ways in which to increase that engagement. For example, in 2015, Australia signed the um, Australian the Framework Agreement on Crisis Management, which allows Australia to participate in EU um, crisis management, civilian um, operations and military operations. So that's one new area where Australia and the EU are looking at that, furthering their cooperation.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, so uh, where do you um, see uh, or do you foresee Australia and the EU cooperating on the more traditional security issues or is it primarily going to remain within that human security space that um, the cooperation is likely to grow?
3: I think we're going to see more of that cooperation in the area of capacity building security sector reform, maritime security aspects, as opposed to that territorial defence side of security cooperation.
1: Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of uh, the future, because again, we are hearing a little bit more from uh, European policymakers about some concerns in relation to China, and uh, a growing interest in the Asia Pacific. Uh, Is this uh, something that you see greater interaction between Australia and, and Europe?
3: Yes, the EU has said that it sees the Asia-Pacific as a very important um, area for its own security. Mm -hmm. Australia is actively engaged in the region, so there are opportunities within the region for the EU and Australia to um, engage Mm -hmm. more, whether that be through the ASEAN Regional Forum Mm -hmm. or whether it be through more capacity training exercises, uh, security sector reform engagement, there are opportunities there um, mm-hmm. for the EU and Australia, but I think it really comes down to what the EU sees its role in the region. Australia already has a it presence, it's more about the EU defining its, its position more clearly in the region. It talks a lot about its role as a security actor and a non-traditional security actor. I think we need to see more tangible use. And one of those areas could possibly be within the area of having um, one of the common security and defence policy civilian missions uh, in the region such Mm -hmm. as the Archai issue that was in 2005 could be another
1: opportunity there. So kind of moving a little bit more back to the whole uh, Brexit discussion, so clearly Britain is a a major um, sort of uh, defence player within the European context. It's a key uh, player within NATO. It's also a major player within the European defence and security architecture. If we are heading towards a hard Brexit, as some would suggest, how is that likely to impact the way Europe is going to develop its um, security identity?
3: Well, the UK is one of the largest, has one of the largest um, militaries within the uh, EU member states. It's actually, it's actually involvement in the EU's defence and security cooperation has been linked. Um, it did help establish the common security and defence policy um, with France in the late 1990s but it has over the years been reluctant to actively engage in some of those military and civilian operations and also in terms of developing a permanent headquarter in Brussels for these operations uh, engaging more in cooperation in defence cooperation in terms of research and development etc. The UK has been more limited in that side of things, so by the UK leading the EU, I think it actually opens the door more for the Europeans to work more collaboratively in some of these areas. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and do you see uh, an interest uh, in the continent to, uh, towards uh, the greater harmonisation of defence and security matters under a European umbrella? or <coughs> Is it likely to remain still uh, very much under the Lisbon Treaty where security issues are within the competencies of the national states, of the member states?
0: At this stage, I would
3: still say that we're still going to have very much security and defence issues remain within that intergovernmental aspect of cooperation in the EU that member states still have ultimate control. But there will be um, increasing opportunities for collaboration, uh, whether it be in terms of defence procurements. Um, in terms of research and development or in terms of having more um, combined battalions, mm-hmm. there are greater opportunities um, through various things like the Permanent Structured Cooperation, which is something I that was established under the Lisbon Treaty but did not get established until 2017. Yep. Yes. And so this is an opportunity for um, European, EU member states to come together and work towards developing new um, capabilities, Mm -hmm. which will allow them to um, be more effective internationally and regionally.
1: Does that also sort of include, you know, sharing their militaries or engaging in capacity building uh, with, you know, some countries taking on maybe more of a naval um, sort of uh, uh, features, whereas others might take uh, other uh, skills?
3: all of the EU member states can't do everything and mm. there's a realisation of that. So it's about being smart in how they use their defence budget. Okay. And so if there is an opportunity where they can share responsibilities then this is an opportunity, one of those mechanisms that could exist within the EU to allow that. But it's also about changing how European states see and understand the defence as adapting to current developments and mm. changes. On the international stage, but we still have territorial issues, especially along the eastern border of Europe.
1: Yes. Uh, so taking that in consideration, so how is that likely then to impact NATO?
3: The Europeans are in are responding to a lot of the concerns about the fact that European partners within NATO have been consuming less to their defence budgets. Mm-hmm. And so since the Wales NATO summit in 2014. The, European, the NATO members have agreed to contribute um, 2% of the GDP to defence within two So there have, has been an active movement amongst um, NATO members mm-hmm. to increase defence spending. And we have seen um, an increase in overall defence spending within the NATO members. There are still some um, it, European members who are lagging harm. For example, there is a question mark as to whether Germany will ultimately reach that 2%, but
1: a lot of the other EU members, states who are in that members, have to 2% of them. Um, mm-hmm. Well, um, I think we're about to uh, lose our line. I think there's uh, some um, interference, uh, but I, I really want to thank you very much for uh, a very comprehensive overview of a very complex matter. Um, Uh, So uh, thank you, uh, Dr. uh, Matera, for um, uh, really a fascinating uh, explanation as to some of the challenges uh, that the EU faces. Thank you for the
0: opportunity. Uh, Thanks. That was Dr. Isaac Kefir speaking with Dr. Margarita Matera. That's it from us for this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. Isaac, thanks so much for joining.
1: Thank you. And
0: thank you for listening. If you have questions about Brexit, feel free to send Isaac a tweet. We'll also have his information below. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback on policy, guns and money. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, keep calm and carry on.